I'm home. Hello out there, all you Rosemary's babies, you neon demons, you people under the stairs. You're listening to The Shuddering, a film podcast covering vintage and modern horror cinema as served up by our favorite streaming service, Shudder. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Chris, we made it to episode two. And Nick, I'm still glad to be here. <laughs> I, I'm even more glad to be here than I was the last time. I don't know. I mean, there's got to be a statistic on this somewhere, but I feel like there are a lot of podcasts that never get past episode one. We're not going to just fillet ourselves like this every episode, like, you know, anniversaries, the 10th, the 50th, the 100th, if we make it that far. But I think two is something we're celebrating. Yes, this is the sequel. This is definitely the sequel. <laughs> and you know the sequel to a uh, original horror film is always so much better oh, than, yeah. than the first one. Every time. Yeah. But we've got a couple of films to talk about tonight. Our theme this time is possession movies, which kind of didn't work out exactly the way we thought it would. We'll get into that a little bit later. But as always on the show, we are going to talk about one vintage film and one modern film, something from pre-2000 and something from post-2000. So tonight we've got on the docket The Taking of Deborah Logan from 2014 and Lisa and the Devil from 1974. Chris, kind of interesting. I mean, we just picked these movies... <laughs> Uh, kind of out of nowhere, but there are some neat links to our last episode. We did Black Sunday and we did Caveat. And so our last episode's theme was first time filmmakers or feature debuts. And so we've got one feature debut tonight, which is The Taking of Deborah Logan. And then we've got another film from Mario Bava, which is Lisa and the Devil. And last time we looked at his first film, Black Sunday. So there's uh, all kinds of like just spider webs <laughs> connecting between these movies. Yes, two episodes in and you can already build this uh this, <laughs> this web and i i didn't even realize that nick that the taking of deborah logan was uh a directorial debut i did, was that part of your method or, or was that just happenstance no not at all honestly it was just one of those things where i had seen the poster i had read some mm. kind of capsule reviews of it i try not to read any full-length reviews on things i haven't seen but i'd just been hearing about it for so long and i actually thought it was more recent than 2014 so sure. we're talking about like eight years of me saying i gotta see this movie and finally thanks to the show i've seen it i have a confession to make about this movie What's that? I'm in the same boat as you. Um, I have always wanted to see this movie. And you know what always deterred me from watching this? You're afraid of old ladies? <laughs> no, I'm not. It's just that's fair, Chris. That's reasonable. <laughs> if that's the way... I, yeah, I didn't mean to sort of open up any traumatic thing for you with this one. No, it's just that that freaking thumbnail with the picture of her like <laughs> grimacing on the on the, I, like like every time I, I was like about to watch it I was just like yeah do I really want to see this like that stupid that stupid Chris I think you might be afraid of old ladies yeah <laughs> look it's fine I, I'm terrified of stuffed rabbits and we did caveat the last time so I understand you put that thing on the poster and it's like what are we gonna do well I know this guy um Adam Ro uh, Robitel who because he directed the Insidious movie The Last Key, which I really liked. Yes, which we um, talked about two podcasts ago when we were doing the long take. We did the entire Insidious series. That wasn't even a horror podcast, but we ran the franchise there. And yeah, that's the most recent Insidious movie that he did. Yep. See, just another part of the web there. So yeah. Oh, that's it, dude. It's uh, it's Peppy Sylvia all over again. <laughs> 
I've got the board up on the wall here and we're just <laughs> making all these connections. But I love it. Yeah, again, so we're going to just sort of pick movies based on themes, and we're picking those themes totally arbitrarily. I mean, we'll try to connect them to things. Our next episode is sort of related to the time of the year it is and stuff like that. But tonight we're talking about two possession movies. If you want to hear sort of the breakdown about what we do on the show, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. We're talking about films that are streaming on Shudder, but of course you can get them in other places as well. But we're going to review two films per episode and give you RIYLs for both of them. So not only are we going to rate and review these films, but we're going to tell you if you like this other film that's a better known film that you've probably seen, then you might like these ones that we're talking about on the show. Chris, we also have a rating scale from one to five. I think it worked out pretty well the last time, although we both gave those films, I think, the same rating uh, both times around. That's not always going to be the case. But do you want to break down our rating scale really quickly one more time for our listeners? Yeah, so we do a rating scale from one through five, five being the best achievement that you could get in our scale, which is the the coveted uh, Exorcist Award. We're we, calling it the Exorcist, the, the gold standard, the great possession movie of all time. That is right. Uh, a, a score of four gets you the Atkins Campbell Award in honor of the great Tom Atkins and Bruce Campbell who have acted in dozens of movies in the genre that we're talking about. <laughs> Not all of them good, but all of them worth seeing because of those two guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, three is the Stand By Me Award, which means that we recommend the movie, but we don't highly recommend it like we would an Atkins Campbell movie. Two we call the Scarcely Scary. So that's <laughs> pretty that's, self-explanatory. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a very soft, not even really a recommend. And then number one, uh, being the lowest score that we can offer, is a watch at your own risk. Again, we know that everyone's tastes are different. It's okay to like a movie. But if your movie scores a one, we call that the Exorcist 2 Award. <laughs> the Heretic. So, the Heretic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the Heretic Award. There, I think we just, we got it. So we're yeah, going to go it. with Heretic uh, for obvious reasons. So... Uh, I think we're going to have a little bit of fun with that. I think on the last episode, uh, I gave Black Sunday an Exorcist Award. You gave it to Atkins Campbell. And then I believe we both gave Caveat the uh, Atkins Campbell Award. Yeah, so fours and fives. That was pretty good last good episode. Yeah. We'll see. So we don't talk about this beforehand. I mean, we, we watch the films. We take notes on the films. But we don't really discuss our feelings about them. Right. And these are two. Like, I hadn't seen either one of these. And I don't think you had either. I know right. you hadn't seen uh, Taking of Deborah Logan. You told us about that. I had not seen either of these movies. That's correct. Okay, so we both kind of went into these blindly, knowing a little bit about what they were, but maybe not as much as we thought. And that's, again, a, another conversation for later. So we're just about to get right into it. Before we do that, I wanted to say thank you to everyone that has reached out to us after that first episode that we put out a couple weeks ago. We really appreciate it. We've got some listeners that followed us from our previous podcast, Precinct 13, the movies and music of John Carpenter. We've got some new listeners, uh, maybe some from way back when we were doing Talking Movies in the Long Take. And we really, really appreciate all of you. As we said, as I said, in so many different ways. I probably belabored this a lot on the last episode, but we really do want to interact with all of our listeners. We want to make this a community thing. Chris, we are not doing this for the money, right? There's, I don't think the shuttering is going to pay for a yacht for either one of us, although if it does, we'll give it some very cool horror-themed name. 
No currency exchange is taking place whatsoever. With, with, with <laughs> I mean, eventually, I, I, I wouldn't turn away money if, if something happened down the line. But right. for the moment, we're doing this because we love movies. We love the horror community. And we just wanted to talk movies to a, a, a larger audience. And we really appreciate that. That is starting to happen already. Uh, really off to a great start. And we appreciate that a lot. So, all right. That was enough sappiness, I think, for that. Like, I always do sappy last episodes. But I've never done a sappy second second episode before. I don't know what it is. That's my old age or something. But we will be right back. We're going to talk about... Uh, so we're switching up the order a little bit this time, too. We're going to start with The Taking of Deborah Logan. We're going to do the older film later. So we're going to start with the newer one. We'll be right back to talk about that. Sarah mentioned that Deb's been sleepwalking pretty bad. So let's set up surveillance cams. All right, we are back, ready to talk about 2014's The Taking of Deborah Logan, filmed by Adam Robitel. It was his first film. That's what we were talking about before. He directed the most recent Insidious movie, which is Insidious The Last Key. That's part four in that series. Chris, I think there's another one coming out, too. Isn't there a fifth Insidious on the way? There is, and I heard that it's going to be directed by Patrick Wilson, actually. Really? Yes, it's supposed to be his directorial debut, believe it or not. Oh man, I'm excited for that. We'll we'll get to that uh, somehow on this show. I mean, I don't want to wait till it streams on Shutter. Chris, can I tell our listeners of this show for those who might have missed it two podcasts ago, my Patrick Wilson regret really quickly? <laughs> yes, of course. All right. So he was uh, one of the the invited guests to speak at my graduate school commencement and it was a really long day I mean it was like because the the entire college like the undergrads and the graduates it was graduation for everybody that day so there was a lot of speeches and a lot of people and there are a number of other you know famous people famous ish people uh, academically famous people there and then there's Patrick Wilson this Hollywood celebrity this was in 2011 but I was already a fan of his and so he gets up he gives a really really great speech and we get through all of the the stuff and I, I get my diploma and all that and I'm there with my wife and my parents and I see him kind of standing off to the side with his family and I'm like oh man that's Patrick Wilson like I'm having such a great day I'm so proud of myself I should go talk to Patrick oh. Wilson and I saw him there and he was kind of on his cell phone and he seemed mad about something and something just told me I shouldn't talk to Patrick Wilson. There is something going on in his life, and he doesn't want to just talk to this film nerd guy that just graduated here. And so I, I didn't speak to him. I didn't go take a picture with him. And I'm going to regret that probably for the rest of my life. Wow. So you were within the uh, you were within his circumference. Yes. Uh, this is pre-conjuring, too. So I probably would have done the same thing, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, meeting celebrities is tough, but when this show gets to that yacht level, maybe maybe then we can we can have Patrick Wilson on the show. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about the taking of Deborah Logan. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Digression. I, I just I have to share that with everyone just because I'm so ashamed that I didn't just talk to this guy who whose work I really admire a lot. Can't wait to see his directorial debut. But uh, Adam Robitel started his career with this film. He'd done some behind the scenes type uh, featurettes before this. I mean, he. he 
he'd made short films, so this wasn't his first time behind the camera, but it was his first feature. And he kind of really quickly made the jump from this to studio features. So he did that Insidious sequel, and then his two most recent films are Escape Room and then the second Escape Room film, which I think was called Tournament of Champions. So he really made a quick jump from the, the minor leagues to the majors kind of thing. This was an independent film from 2014. Uh, squicky little thing we have to get out of the way first. This was produced by Brian Singer. We, we all know what's going on with that guy or what is alleged about that guy, but he is also the director of uh, a lot of X-Men movies and The Usual Suspects and, uh, and, and some other things and is part of the film industry, whether we like that or not. And I don't think he and Robitel really did anything together after this. And I, I'd like to imagine that he's just the producer and, or executive producer. His company put up the money for it, but, um, you know, he's not involved. It's tough to do that, right? Like there's so many Hollywood figures who've been disgraced so much and we've learned some really horrible things about so many people in the movie industry over the past few years. And it's a little hard, you know what, Chris, you're a big Tarantino fan like I am. And you see Weinstein's name come up in the credits of those movies and you're like, uh. Oh, not even his movies, like every movie you, you watch that was <laughs> like Miramax films from, you know, the 90s and, yeah, of course. and all that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, and certainly at the time, I'm sure back in 2014, it was probably it was a big deal to have his name, you know, uh, as a production credit on this for a first time filmmaker. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, there, there had always been some suspicions about him, I think even going back to the X-Men days. But again, he was a pretty powerful guy in Hollywood. I don't think that he is so much anymore. More, but yeah, like to uh, to get this film bankrolled. I mean, you, you got to get somebody behind it, I guess. And it clearly has launched this director to bigger and better things. So, um, where do we want to start here? I mean, I guess we should describe this movie a little bit. Do you want to take that responsibility? I'm going to make you do the other one, which is going to be so much harder. <laughs> but but if if you want, if you want a softball, take uh, take the taking of Deborah Logan. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care to do... I'll do either. It's like, I mean, I will say uh, probably most importantly, just as far as genre is concerned, I mean, this is a found footage film. And yes. I didn't even know that. <laughs> That's how little I knew about this movie. So right off the bat, I'm like, okay. And with found footage films in particular, I've seen some that are absolutely mind-blowing and then others... Not not so much. It, certainly at this point, it has been uh, done at a, at a pretty high frequency in the industry. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is definitely a well, it's, it, well, it's a it's a it's a story about a group of youngsters that are trying to make their own documentary about Deborah Logan. And she is basically I mean, she's suffering from uh She's suffering from Alzheimer's disease and basically the she doesn't really like to have, you know, people around and things of that nature. And as they're as they're filming her, you know, eventually they, they agree to, you know, go ahead and let the, these students make the film. Uh, all these extremely bizarre things start happening and it, it gets, you know, into the supernatural pretty quickly 
And uh, well, there's a suspicion of the supernatural pretty quickly, right? I mean, it's it's kind yeah. of ambiguous for uh, most of I'd say the first third to the first half of the movie. Uh, but yeah, they're they're PhD they're, or the the leader of this film crew. Her name is Mia, and she is a PhD student. She's doing this as a thesis project, so she's making a documentary about someone with what at the beginning I think has early stage Alzheimer's, and then it pretty quickly progresses in ways that it is unusual for that condition and yeah we get these sort of supernatural ish goings on and the only other uh, kind of an important element there that uh, that we didn't talk about yet is Deborah Logan is the the woman who is the subject of this documentary and it's her daughter Sarah who kind of invites these people into their home because there's grant money involved they're gonna lose oh, the yes, house right. otherwise so Sarah is She's basically the main character of this movie. I mean, she is our protagonist and this film crew. Uh, it's Mia. And then she has two assistants, a guy named Gavin and the cameraman, Luis, who I think we see him like for maybe 30 seconds of this movie because he's always behind the camera. That's the, the sort of found footage gimmick there. Uh, but that guy really doesn't get a whole lot of screen time at all. But really, Mia doesn't get as much as you would think either. So it, it kind of becomes the story of Sarah uh, contending with this thing that's happening to her mother that may just be a, a particularly insidious form of Alzheimer's. But yeah, as you were saying, as the film goes on, we see more and more things that cannot be explained just by sort of the natural progression of a disease. <laughs> right. It's no spoiler to say that, you know, we're talking about possession movies. So that's where this, you know, kind of ends up going. But yes, you bring up a really good point there that I left out. Yes, absolutely. They are uh, the whole reason why they they uh, contract, you know, these um, Mia and and the and the rest of her her two other people, <laughs> the camera guy and uh, the other person helping them out there to do this is because yeah, they're pretty hard up for cash. So um, they it's a a lot of grant money. I mean, I don't know. That's that's not the part of academia that I'm familiar with. But like, could you get hundreds <laughs> of thousands of dollars to do this? I mean, maybe Mia's just that persuasive. Maybe she just wrote a really great proposal. But I don't know. Well, yeah, like I, I like nobody no gave me a hundred thousand dollars to make a movie when I was a graduate student. That would have been awesome. What did you I could have gotten Patrick Wilson to be in it? <laughs> What 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 did you think of Gavin's character in this movie? Um, I wanted him to be like those guys in the Insidious movies, <laughs> the yeah. uh, Tucker the two side characters there, Tucker and Specs. Yeah, I couldn't think of their names, and I kind of thought he was going to be that. But yeah, Gavin is kind of the more rational of the group, where he starts to see some weird shit going on, and basically very quickly announces that. Maybe they shouldn't be doing this. And there's a question, right? Like in the first half of the movie or so, it's like, are they just exploiting this lady with a, a very serious condition? Should they be there? You know, what are the ethics of this? And then when things start to get weird and there's like self-harm and all this kind of dangerous, you know, scary and also like physically harmful stuff going on, like, should we keep making this film? Should we keep rolling cameras? And of course, this is a found footage movie. So, you know, there's going to be an excuse for them to keep rolling cameras. Um, this is also, it's 
like it's found footage. I'd also kind of call it a mockumentary. Like there's parts where they cut mm. away to other things and sort of explain some of the backstory. Some of it's really interesting. So it's a little bit of, I mean, a lot of found footage movies are like that. This one is not so much into the mockumentary side of things as some of them are, but it's not just sort of a straight, like these are the tapes we recovered from these people who died, you know, a Blair Witch sort of thing where it's supposed to be like almost an unedited, just a, a raw video of what happened. Uh, but it is edited in such a way that we get a sense of, of some background and things like that. This movie scared me only because I've had people in my family, and I'm sure you've had two that have suffered from like the same disease. And, yes. you know, it really, w without uh, much effort, touched me pretty, pretty personally on those levels because it's such a, like, there, there's some medical explanations in this that I remember just being, it, it's so dark. I mean, losing your memories is just one of the most terrifying things to begin with. And that's, sadly a reality for many people so right off the bat I mean this movie is dark <laughs> very very dark <laughs> it is and I will say one of the things that made me a little apprehensive about it is I did have a family member who suffered from from Alzheimer's and it is it's yeah. like the saddest thing it in the world well. and it's it's mm -hmm. scarier to me like what you were just saying the idea of forgetting things that are important to you and then like forgetting just how to go about your <laughs> daily life like that's more terrifying than anything in any horror movie and or, to me uh, sorry go ahead Oh, no, I was just going to say, or why are you in this room right now? <laughs> like, how, like, yeah, like, like, exactly. How, like, how, how did, did you... I get here? Because exactly. I do that all the time anyway, right? You know, just a little, yeah. like, you space out for a second. It's like, why did I come down to the kitchen? And so the thought of, like, your entire life being that, or the thought of someone you love, the thought of their life being that, and then people have to care for you, it is a really sensitive topic. And I think this movie actually does a pretty good job, at least at the start of it. I mean, this could be really cheesy and exploitative and could kind of make light of that or just not treat it in a, a mature kind of way and I actually think it does a lot of mm -hmm. that I think is due to uh, the the lead performance Deborah Logan is played by an actress named Jill Larson who yes. did some television work but you know she's definitely not a big name performer and this is her movie I mean she's on screen a lot much more than some of those characters we were just mentioning and I think she's phenomenal you know she is uh, we are mm -hmm. very I think sympathetic toward her and particularly you know as you were saying I think a lot of people have been affected by something like this or have seen it or had a, a friend have their family member go through it. So they sort of know the way this works and how sad it is and, and how you really just want to help this person as much as you can. And, and there's things that, you know, no, no matter how hard you try, there are just things that are not going to work. There's, there's no getting through to them uh, in some sense. And I think the film actually treats that in a fairly realistic way and, and in a way that's not just like, let's get to the bloody stuff right away kind of thing and it does it takes it seriously and so you know I don't mind a movie about something like Alzheimer's so long as it takes that approach and it's not just trivializing something that is really serious I completely agree and I also agree with what you're saying before yeah Jill Larson's performance in this is pretty damn good the makeup too I mean I'm, I was just looking at a picture of what she looks like in real life and I'm like wow they they really did a good job of uh you know with the aging and sort of uh just camouflaging her as this 
this character. Yeah, she doesn't look nearly as old. Um, it's it's definitely some old age makeup that's done here, but it looks pretty good. I will also say uh, Anne Ramsey, who plays Sarah, her daughter, who's another actress. I've seen her before, but definitely not in any sort of major roles and things. And she's really good, too. Like, that's a thing with found footage, right? Like, we're, we're supposed to believe that this is real, that this is stuff that actually happened and is not staged, is not acting. And I think that's a thing. I mean, we should talk about this, too. But I mean, I think one of the big sticking points, one of the things that really bothers me about a lot of found footage movies is it's so obvious that these people are acting and that this is not real footage. And here, I mean, the way it's filmed is kind of very, like things are very, very much in focus. The video quality is just kind of a little too perfect in some places. But I will say the acting in this is mostly good enough where you can suspend that disbelief. And and a lot of particularly low-end, really low-budget found footage movies where some director is just like, well, I don't have to know shot framings. I can just point a camera at people doing stuff. Uh, This is not that. I mean, this is pretty carefully done and and the acting I think is pretty good across the board. Yeah. There it's, it's, it's funny to be talking about this now because again, our overarching theme or or, and connecting theme between these two films uh, is that their possession films. uh, I repeat that I didn't know this was going to be a found footage film and, and it, and it immediately made me think to myself, well, Obviously, at some point, we're going to get around to doing some found footage films. Also, on a side note, I wanted to point out one thing this movie has going for it, just like the other two movies we watched. Nice, tight 90 minutes, Nick. Nice, yes, it tight is. I think 90 it's minutes. Exactly 90 minutes. Yep. And uh, while we're at it, let me ask you do you have a favorite found footage film? Because I know that uh, those opinions vary. I have one, like, I have a number one with a bullet. It's there's no, I've never seen anything. Just thinking about it is making my spine literally tingle over here. I I guess you go first then, and then I'll tell you what mine is. I have a couple. All right. It's the film Gongium or Gongium Haunted Asylum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit on the last show. That was a recommendation of mine, I think. (sighs) Dude, no. (laughs) (laughs) I just, that movie scared the daylights out of me man that movie's on shutter so if you're a shutter subscriber definitely check that out if you haven't yet we, we might get to that one on 2000 2018 point. uh korean found footage horror film wow that's my that's my favorite right there that's a great one. I mean, I, I have to say that it's Blair Witch. Uh, I, I saw Ooh. that in 1999 in the theater. It was a packed theater. I was uh, with this girl I was seeing at the time, and we there were no seats left. They oversold the theater, and we were, like, crouching. We were, like, sitting on the floor in I the back there. of the theater, and I was just mesmerized the entire time. And I know so, maybe it doesn't hold up perfectly, but I think that movie uh, is, is really great and really just kind of introduced me to this world this this faux documentary thing that i think works really brilliantly for horror when it's done well and i thought that one was i was just gonna say but how well does it hold up i um... i don't know it's been a while since i've seen it and maybe that says something too right like i've been kind of reluctant to revisit it i will say uh, a more recent one that i reviewed for film threat a few years ago there's a film called butterfly kisses which Mm. was kind of a um, low budget indie found footage film kind of mockumentary style even more so than this one was and that one's great too i don't know where that's streaming i don't think it's on shutter but that one's really good i like wreck and quarantine those were good i mean there's i think found footage is if done right then it, it is a very scary way to kind of get lost in a horror movie you know because if you can buy into the realism of it and you're not seeing maybe it's just sort of 
I don't know that there's you kind of empathize with the characters a little bit more and you're scanning the frame not for sort of what this director artfully did but just things that kind of appear it's it's hard to describe but I do think successful found footage is uh, is a great subgenre of horror. What do you think about it like altogether? Like are you kind of anti found footage like when you found out this film was a found footage film or you're like yeah not really into that? No, not at all. I'm okay. I, I I'm I'm somewhat of a centrist when it comes to found film but I, I'm, I'm leaning more towards favorable. Um, they're definitely not my 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 go to. They're not mine. Yeah, right. But but I've I've seen enough. Like I've I, I think that Paranormal Activity three is a really good movie. I really uh, I'm not a huge fan of that series, but I love part three. Why That's is the three one that I will, so good? <laughs> like a I, it's like they really everything just sort of clicked for that one. You know what? It's the oscillating fan camera, which they actually do in this movie too. I think this came out after that. So little bite off a. a PA3, but that's a really, really great found footage film as well. Well, the Gongium, I hope I'm probably not pronouncing that correct. It's uh, G O N J I A M. Haunted Asylum. That would be the yes. one that I would recommend. That's a um, fun movie because that one is a very yeah. sort of modernized version of this, right? Like the characters are all influencers and they've got all this technology, like drone cams and stuff like that. So yeah. it's kind of like uh, like the the more recent the Blair Witch remake or the reboot they did in 2016. They I never kind saw of it. went. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of it, um, particularly as as a big fan of the original. But Ganjiem kind of brings it all into the modern era. You know, the uh, the TikTok era, if you if you will. Yeah, so as far as Deborah Logan's concerned, I mean, how much more do we talk about as far as like the story is concerned without like giving away too much? That's always the challenge, right? You know, like I don't know that I want to go much farther, but basically what happens is uh, this this woman's, as we said, her disease progresses in ways that just don't seem to make sense to the doctors. Um, There's a few medical professionals who are characters in the film and we get like interview segments with them and they actually see her at a few points. But she starts seeing things outside her house and has an incident where she's out in the backyard. She's a gardener. She loves to garden and she she lives uh, set in a small town in Virginia and she lives in this kind of sprawling, almost a mansion, I would call it, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's a very rural place, and she gardens, and she's out in the woods, and she starts, like, sneaking out of her room and kind of disappearing and getting a little bit violent, um, does does this thing to herself that was just horrific to see. I won't spoil exactly what it is, but yeah. So very quickly, not only does her daughter realize that something is especially wrong here and her doctors, but also this film crew that's following following her around and, and as you mentioned that character Gavin who's Mia's assistant and the kind of voice of reason he very quickly decides that maybe this is something they shouldn't be doing and and you know this woman needs help and probably shouldn't be just followed around by a camera crew kind of thing yeah and I'm gonna say like this this movie held my interest the entire time uh and I think this that, movie is very tense yeah very and, very tense and uh the ending I mean, <laughs> I did not see that coming. That's all I will say. Uh, it, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it's a pretty good ending. But yeah, you're right. Like, there's all kinds of it's. I see what I love in movies like this is like, as things do get more and more insane, I love to see the the reactions of like all the people around, like the camera crew. You know what I mean? Like as yeah. they're seeing this shit, they start freaking out. Like. 
I love that, man, because it, that that puts me more in the movie, too, because I'm trying to, like, relate to what the, they're doing. And there was nothing I really saw in this movie that I was like, oh, that's completely fake. You know what I mean? Like, there wasn't, like... Well, in terms of the reactions, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. think my biggest problem with this movie, I think it's it's well-acted, it's well-developed. I think it takes its time to progress. I mean, I wouldn't exactly call it a slow burn, but I'd say the no. first 20 minutes or so, there's nothing even remotely creepy. I mean, it... Uh, or, I guess I shouldn't say there's nothing remotely creepy, but it's really on the margins of the film, the sort of more supernatural type stuff or the the hallucinations and those kinds of things that you know Mm -hmm. are probably leading to something later on. Um, But it does very steadily, I think, increase the tension. And it's one of those films where you're kind of like sitting back and the characters are just talking and then something horrible happens out of nowhere. (laughs) There's a lot of surprises like that. And I think Robotel does a great job of setting that up early so that you're always kind of on your toes right you're always caught off guard and when that stuff like every scene you're just waiting for something like that to happen and I do think it it pays that off very very strongly I mean my biggest problem as I was saying is I think it goes a little too far not in terms of of gore or explicitness or extremity or anything like that uh, or of just being really really dark it is dark I mean this this heads almost into Ari Aster territory at a couple points but not quite but I think it's a little too over the top you know the the last half of it I think it just escalates things a little bit too much and to me like you were saying that the believability of the characters I do think it's mostly there in the first half and I think that starts to go away a little <laughs> bit and I read some reviews of this and, and a number of critics said the same thing where you know the characters start acting very irrationally and, and the situations become less sort of grounded I mean I, I guess One of the things I thought about this film was it would be really interesting to do this as just a portrayal of someone with a a mental condition. And maybe we don't know, like maybe it's ambiguous whether anything supernatural is happening. As you were saying before, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this is, this is a possession movie uh, in some sense. It's not the most conventional take on that, but ultimately it definitely fits into that sort of subgenre, and Mm -hmm. it does go to places that are, are supernatural, metaphysical, things like that. Um, But I, I was wondering what this movie would be like if it was just very low, key and very ambiguous and we weren't sure if this woman was just hallucinating things or if there was really something evil or supernatural going on there so I don't know I mean I think my my biggest knock against this movie is that it takes things a little bit too far and and it strains believability uh, toward the end but I'm with it. it you know it never lost my interest as you were saying and I do think that the way that the tension builds is really good this film is I don't want to spoil what it is you may have seen part of one of the closing scenes in this film it's kind of become almost like a meme um so i had seen that before but i had never seen the film and i had never seen this scene like this film kind of builds and builds and builds to this one shot that is just mind-blowing um really i think catches you as a viewer off guard especially if you don't know like i forgot about that right which i'm glad i did i wasn't just waiting for it the whole time but it kind of feels like this whole movie exists to just give you this one moment that's just like a holy shit what did i just see kind of moment and i love those uh you know my favorite probably in all of horror cinema maybe in all of cinema is the guy in the bear suit in the shining (laughs) 
yeah, what sure. is that that Wendy sees there? And, you know, it's kind of glimpsed and then it's gone. There's a shot that it's nothing like that, but I think has the same kind of impact uh, as that in this film. So that was one of my favorite things about it. I also there's like a, an epilogue, kind of a, a coda to this movie that I thought was very clever. Um, although my wife who watched this with me, she wasn't crazy about that, but she was mm. pretty impressed with the film. And she said uh, at least three times and she's a pretty hardened horror fan. You know, it takes a lot to sort of get under her skin. And she was like, I don't know how much more of this I can take. This is really intense. And I was like, all right, that means this is a pretty good movie because I was feeling kind of the same way. Are you ready to share your ranking on this film, Nick? <laughs> uh, yeah. So let me quickly do an R.I.Y.L. first because oh, okay. it's going to be a little bit tough for this one because this is a film that I don't know that is an extremely popular film. And I saw it when it came out and I, I'm not sure I remember it particularly well. I just remember really liking it and thinking it was a, a very well-made movie for what it was. And that is 2010's The Last Exorcism, which is another found footage possession movie. That one's much more in kind of the religious horror tradition. It's got a lot of similarities to The Exorcist. It's a, a story of a priest. Uh, but I thought that was a very effective found footage take on this genre that we've been familiar with way back uh, since The Exorcist. So that movie got a sequel. I think it made pretty good money at the box office. So if you like The Last Exorcism, I called it that, right? I didn't call it The Last Exorcist. It's The Last Exorcism. You said it correctly. Um, yeah. All yeah. Right. Just making sure. Uh, if you like that movie, I definitely think you'll like Taking of Deborah Logan. Although I think this is, if you're a fan of horror, if you're a found footage person, I think this one is worth seeing. I'm going to give it a four out of five. I'm going to give this an act Campbell. It's not perfect. Um, I think oh. it's it suffers a little bit from you know that like I the the Sarah character I think is very well developed and the Deborah character works well, but I don't think we really get to know the filmmaking crew very much. I mean it's it's kind of a lean and mean streamlined movie, and I don't think the script is great, but I do think the way it progresses and and some of the ideas behind what's actually going on are really interesting, and it's just it's fucking scary. Uh, it yes. is a movie that really really just as I said, really escalates the tension very well. And when it does a jump scare or when you do get like one of these images that you're not expecting, there's a few things. Uh, if you're not a fan of snakes, I'm going to put that out there. I know that might be a little bit of a spoiler, but oh, we yeah. have a good mutual friend, Chris, that I would never show this movie to because <laughs> he has this like crippling fear of snakes in movies. And there is some snake stuff in here. I won't say more than that, but that all worked for me. I thought I, it was just a, a very scary movie and I think very well constructed for what it was and you could tell that that Adam Robitel knows what he's doing and and I think you know if this is not a great film and his studio horror stuff have not been amazing films I definitely think he has something pretty game changing in him at some point so yeah four out of five good old Atkins Campbell and that now I've given that rating to everything we've talked about <laughs> thus far but I promise I'll break the streak what about you what's your R.I.Y.L. first of all uh, my R.I.Y.L. on this film is um, going to be a movie called The Medium, um, which I believe is also on Shudder right now. The Medium is a, a, a Thai film, actually, that was written by one of my favorite Korean uh, horror filmmakers, Na Hong Jin. Uh, Na Hong Jin is the director of The Chasing or I'm sorry, The Wailing, uh, The Chaser, and also, what the heck is that movie? The Yellow Sea, all three of which are fantastic. Uh, Nick, have you seen The Medium? 
I have not seen The Medium. I have seen The Chaser. That movie's great. Okay, yeah. So this movie is um, more a possession movie than it is a found footage movie, but there absolutely is. It starts off exactly like like you're watching a documentary for basically the first hour of the movie. And then it kind of, the way I remember it, it kind of like turns into more of your like traditional setup of, of a possession movie. But my God, is it worth sticking with? Um, if you, if you, if there's no way, if you were a fan of one, you'd, you'd definitely be a fan of the other. A uh, little bit longer though, Nick, two hours and 10 minutes on the medium. That's pretty long for a found footage ish movie. Well, so what I'm trying to tell you is that like the first 45 minutes of it are like its own movie. It, t- it there's a really long setup to it. Interesting. Um, and then and then it just kind of goes. And let me tell you, when this thing gets going, holy shit! It's a it's a really really good movie. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could definitely say that about the taking of Deborah Logan. Also, is that like stick with it in the beginning if you're sort of a little bored by. It. I mean, not that it's boring, but it is a little bit. Uh, it's a little clinical because it is a, a film about a medical condition and sort of a case study sort of thing. And I do think that's set up really well. It may not be the most exciting thing, but if you can kind of see it through you're going to get something for your your time investment in this one. Well, Nick, I'm so excited to say that I am also going to give it the Atkins Campbell Award. Um, the, the old AC. So what is your, uh, what didn't you like about this? Like what prevented this from getting to exorcist level for you? It's just not that epic. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, it's very effectively done. It's, it's, I think it's very fresh and I think it's it's like you said before this movie is straight up and down terrifying like this movie is I was impressed at how scary it was like I was, I was sitting too. there going, I, I was, was sitting too. there going jeez this is really no holds barred um but it's just not epic like it's not going to be a movie that is like you know I hate to use that word like influential or iconic or whatever you know it's like this is part of a subgenre and as part of that subgenre it's really great yes but it's it's not like you know the the exorcist that like started a whole genre of films or like my argument for black sunday was similar uh but solid four all day long i would absolutely recommend you watch this movie and you know, with films like this with horror, and you never know what critical reception is going to be. When I saw this movie had a 91% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, I said, God damn it, good for you. I was yeah. so, I was so like happy to see that, you know, like, so yeah, I'm going to give it a four all day. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. This is a really solid example of a subgenre, but it is, it's a variation on a theme. It's nothing new. It's not terribly original. Although I will say, like, one of the things, uh, sorry to keep going back to this with you, Chris, but like, we've seen a lot of creepy kid movies and creepy baby movies, creepy young people. Uh, or, you know, The Exorcist is kind of a creepy kid movie in some sense, right? And uh, yeah. very rarely do you see uh, an elderly person as the center of a film like this. Sure. And I guess. I guess it's because we don't really find the elderly very threatening. Although, uh, did you see, was it The Visit by M. Night Shyamalan? He kind of played in those <laughs> waters a little bit. This is a better movie than that. But I thought it was kind of I interesting to see that 
sort of originality there where it's, uh, you know, a, a sweet old lady suffering from Alzheimer's. That is the possessed is the, the sort of center of this sure. possession narrative. So yeah. I guess that's a, a check in the originality column. And man, this performance, uh, I, I I haven't seen her in anything since this. I haven't gone through her whole filmography, but this is one, this is like a, like a lifetime achievement, I feel like, for Jill Larson as an sure. actress. I mean, that could not have been an easy role to play. And even when things get scary and violent. I mean, we are still sympathetic to this character because there is a a sense that she's a real person who is going through a very, very real thing, as we said. So I think she really gets that across in a a really great way. And so we are on board with her and her daughter and, and sort of seeing them through this horrific thing that they go through. Yeah, like if I had just, if I had had the courage to watch this in the past and gotten over my fear of just her grimacing face on the thumbnail, (laughs) and I had just watched it, it would have been dumb luck that I stumbled upon a movie that is like better than average in a lot of ways, is how I would put it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think a pretty solid recommendation for this one. This is a pretty popular movie. I mean, it's streaming all over the place. It's not just on Shutter. I think it's on Amazon Prime and a couple other places too. And I know it's gotten, it, it had the Rotten Tomatoes, the 91%, and it's not an unknown movie, but if you were apprehensive the way Chris and I were about this one, <laughs> just we're just, yeah. let the shuddering tell you that this is a movie that is definitely <laughs> worth seeing. Definitely check it out and I think you'll like it. All right. Well, I think that's about all that we can say about the taking of Deborah Logan without giving away the ghost. So we should move on to another work by Italian horror maestro Mario Bava, the film Lisa and the Devil, which was later called The House of Exorcism. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But check out a clip from Lisa and the Devil. The devil seems a presence so strong and overpowering that this painting has led to a local superstition. Now it's too late. We are back to talk about Lisa and the Devil from director Mario Bava. This is a 1974 release. And Chris, you picked this movie as a possession movie. And it turns out this version of it is not really a possession movie. I know. So I got I got tricked. And uh, (laughs) I I wasn't aware. Again, speaking of dumb luck, when when you were when we decided that we were going to do possession uh, and this is what Shudder has it categorized under. Yes. Um, is Lisa and the Devil, and I clicked on it. It had the right year, and when I saw it was directed by Mario Bava, I said, perfect, so that's yeah. why we and went the Devil, so that's what get. he does, right? Right, right. So, you know, just coming <laughs> just, just coming off the, like, extremely positive experience I had with Black Sunday, I thought this would be a no-brainer and also add a thread to the previous episode. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... After talking about Black Sunday and kind of researching Bava a little bit, I mean, this is a a gap in my film knowledge, right? I mean, this is a major Mm -hmm. player in horror cinema, an international horror cinema going back to the 1960s. And I knew about him. I'd always kind of heard the the reverential tones that horror fans, you know, apply to talking about Mario Bava. I had seen his son's film, Demons, which is a really, really great movie, Lamberto Bava. Yes. Um, 
but I was not so familiar with with the granddaddy of Italian horror's work. And you know, if my name was not enough of an indication for all of our listeners, I am very proudly Italian American. I like seeing things from my my ancestral homeland in Italy. So I don't know why I never got around to Bava stuff, particularly because I'm a big Dario Argento fan, and Bava was a, an acknowledged sort of widely acknowledged influence on him. So let's just sort of get this thing out of the way first, and then we can move on to actually talking about the movie. So Lisa and the Devil was made by Bava in, in 19... Like, the, the dates on this are weird. It was released in 74. I believe it was made in 72. And it played some film festivals, and he was not able to get a distributor for it. So this is like later period stuff for him, right? Like, Black Sunday is his directorial debut in 1960. Basically makes a number of films, mostly in the horror genre, although he kind of did other exploitation genres also in the 60s and really makes a name for himself in the industry as sort of a big name director during that time and has a lot of clout in the industry by this point. And as we said on the last episode, his career was not very long. He only made movies, uh, only directed feature films in the 60s and in the 70s. And this is one of his last movies, actually. Well, he passed away at 65 years old um, in 1980. I didn't know that until just the other day. Yeah, so he starts his career late. I mean, he he works in the film industry his entire life and does special effects and does cinematography and steps in and directs other people's movies that they walked off of. But until 1960, he's like in his 40s at that point, he had not made a feature film. Uh, That was his first feature film. And so his career as a feature film director lasts less than two decades. And this is toward the end of that, but it is after he's really established himself and, and sort of made that name and earned that respect. However, even the sort of biggest fish in the pond don't always get exactly what they want. So he makes Lisa and the Devil kind of exactly to his specifications. I mean, this was a film that he didn't write the script. He contracted the script, but he's at this point where the producers basically said, make whatever you want. We'll give you the money for it. So he does that. And then it doesn't get distribution for whatever reason. The distributors don't think it's marketable, don't think audiences are going to like it. So this is post the success of one of our favorite films, The Exorcist. And in 1975, his producers basically hire back the lead actress, Elka Sommer, and shoot these new scenes. And Bava had creative influence on this, but I don't think he was, like, based on what I read, this was not something that he really wanted to do. Uh, so there are other directors who are directing these scenes that add an exorcism plot to this movie, sort of take what already <laughs> existed as Lisa and the Devil and make it into this exorcism film, which I don't know how you could even do that that um, but I guess that just tells you the sort of magic and the deception of film editing where you can cut these scenes in that make it a possession movie and one of the co-directors who worked on that sort of additional footage was Lamberto Bava who is Bava's son who went on to be a pretty well-respected horror director in his own right so the version of this that actually is a possession movie I mean, there's sort of some stuff in Lisa and the Devil that you might consider part of this genre, but the actual possession movie, yeah, it's a stretch, I would say. I mean, you'd really have to jump through some hoops to get it there. But The House of Exorcism, it was re-released in 1975 to cash in on The Exorcist and the popularity of that movie and the themes in that movie. They made it more of a religious horror possession type thing. And so... 
we didn't see that movie. We saw the original version. This is Baba's vision as he wanted it, as he sort of intended for this film to be. And I think it would be really, really interesting to compare the two. Like, I don't know, that that version is not streaming on Shudder. I would love to see that version because this is already very tough to figure out as it is. And when you start adding stuff that wasn't originally there, I don't know how it can make any sense whatsoever. Well, that's sort of the thing is that I I was shocked because I didn't do any research on the movie until after I had watched it once. I did watch it twice for this program. Yeah, to my chagrin, I was like, oh, like, you know, Mario, Mario Bava essentially disowned himself from from the film. Yes. Um, And this whole re-release of The House of Exorcism being this movie that's just you know, trying to cash in on the on the the worldwide popularity of the Exorcist. Um, you know, I mean that that sort of thing makes sense. But yeah, we didn't get that movie. I, I feel like that was the movie we were so <laughs> we were supposed to watch that movie because I the whole time I was watching this, I'm like, when is the possession happening? <laughs> it's it like just, getting to the fireworks factory, right? That's a Simpsons reference. I don't know if you're a yeah, Simpsons fan, and, but I, and I gotta say, I've been watching a lot. I think I mentioned this before in the last show, like. I've seen half a dozen Argento films, um, mostly from the 70s and early 80s. So, like, I mean, during his his kind of hot streak, like, I really haven't seen anything from him that I don't like. I really liked uh, Deep Red and uh, uh, Suspiria, Phenomenon. Name a couple of other popular Argento films from... Uh, well, you, you already named my favorite. Uh, opera is another one. Tenebrae is a Tenebrae. really good one. Tenebrae was great. I saw that. Tenebrae is opera. such a bloody movie. I love it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of get used to this a little bit. Um, you and, mean this difficulty of parsing the plot of an Italian Well, that's movie. why I will hate you if you make me try to explain this movie, because not only did I watch it twice, I've like read the plot on Wikipedia. Yes, me too. I've done everything. And like, I still don't really know how to explain... <sighs> this movie simply i mean you want me to take a shot at it d- dude give it a shot and i'll i'll, I'll see if i if if, if i if i feel like you need any help i'll interject but you'll probably do a much better job than i ever could i i don't know with this one so I, all right so that's one thing we should establish about this movie very early on is it's a little bit hard to understand and you know that's not always a deal breaker for me i'm a huge david lynch fan and i still haven't figured out what the hell is going on in most of his movies but mm-hmm. i love those movies and mulholland drive is one of my favorite films so so that's not a big problem for me. And if a plot does not follow sort of a, a standard kind of realistic logic, that's fine. I mean, particularly in the horror genre, I don't mind that at all. But this one is, it's just particularly difficult to understand and kind of elliptical in a lot of ways. Like this main character of this movie, her name is in the title, Lisa and the Devil. And we don't really get to know who she is at all. Like she's kind of a, a blank slate. She is kind of an audience surrogate. Like we're seeing a, a weird world through her eyes, but literally we know nothing about her. Um, the, the one thing we do know, she's a very attractive young woman uh, played by Elke Sommer, who is a, a 
German actress. And so the film's plot is that uh, Lisa is a tourist. She's traveling in Spain. We don't know where she came from. We don't know how she got there. She seems to be traveling with another woman that we never see after the opening scene of this movie. She just like flat out disappears. There's a lot of stuff like that in this movie. Uh, but she's traveling through Spain. They end up in the village of Toledo. And one of the first things we see in the film is a fresco of the devil taking the dead down to hell with him, I guess. And the devil is a creepy sort of bald figure, which is very important later on. So for some reason, and this is never explained, we don't know why, we don't know what possesses her to leave the tour group that she's on. Like at the beginning of the movie, we see her get off a bus and she's with her friend, I think, or maybe this is just a lady that she met as part of this tour group. Uh, but they're looking at this fresco in a churchyard and she just kind of wanders off like into the village. We don't know why. She kind of just like sees something and, and follows her eye, follows her nose wherever she's going. Uh, uh, she ends up in an antique shop where a guy played by Telly Savalas, TV actor Telly Savalas, Kojak himself. Yeah, yeah, baby. <laughs> I grew up watching some Kojak. I knew Did you we... see? I've, I've never seen an episode of Kojak. Oh. We're going we're gonna to have to talk about that, but let me try to get through the plot first. Sure. Um, so she sees this mysterious bald man played by Telly Savalas in an antique shop. He's purchasing a mannequin. He creeps her out right away. I mean, he's a pretty intimidating, pretty creepy looking guy. And when she leaves the shop, she can't get back to the tour group. Some sort of weird thing happens where the path that she came down doesn't lead back to where she was going. And the village seems deserted. And she doesn't really know what's going on. Um, kind of strange, surreal things start happening to her. She encounters this man with a mustache who seems to know her, even though she's a tourist and she's never been there before. But this guy claims she's somebody else. In the process of interacting with this guy, he falls down the stairs and dies. She <laughs> accidentally murders him. <laughs> well, can you accidentally murder somebody? She she manslaughters him, Oh, I Nick, guess. do you think that was maybe one of the rip-off scenes from The Exorcist, falling down a flight of stairs? Uh, well, that, uh. that was in the original version, but maybe, yeah, maybe that, that was what they took from The Exorcist. <laughs> in this version was The Stairs, a pretty gruesome right. death via stairs. And so she gets lost and eventually this really ritzy Rolls Royce-ish car pulls up and there's this aristocratic couple, an older man and a younger woman who pick her up as a hitchhiker. She's completely lost in a foreign, unfamiliar place. And so this couple picks her up and it is uh, a, a rich guy by the name of Lehar and his much younger wife Sophia and we find out pretty quickly that their driver a guy named George is having an affair with the wife or the wife is having an affair with the driver and they're driving through this sort of foggy, creepy night in Toledo and they end up in front of this mansion and so the car breaks down, you know, it's typical horror movie stuff. Their car breaks down in a creepy place. It's this mansion kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And very quickly, we find out that the butler, the servant in the house, is Telly Savalas, is this character, Leandro, that we saw before. <laughs> uh, so he is the servant at the house. And then it is the, the, the lady of the house is the countess. I don't know that we ever actually get her name, but she's played by the very famous Italian actress, Alita Valley who's been in a number of Bertolucci films. Like, I remember seeing her a lot, like, in college when I was in film school. She showed up oh. in a lot of films that we looked at along the way. She's older. She's, you know, I think she was, as a younger uh, actress, she was in a lot more movies, but this is her doing kind of a 
you know, a more mature kind of role or a more, you know, an, an elder elder person kind of role. Uh, so she is the lady of the house. And then her son is Max, played by Alessio Orano. And he's this young, handsome, but sort of very troubled guy who... Uh, immediately takes a liking to Lisa. He wants her to stay. They don't really want the rich couple and their driver to stay, but the rich couple persuades them, like, let let her driver fix the car. Let us hang out here while he fixes the car. And Lisa is just kind of adrift at this point. I mean, we don't really... She doesn't seem particularly frightened by the fact that she may have just seen a guy die right in front of her and be responsible for it. She doesn't seem all that freaked out by the fact that she's estranged from her tour group and in a strange place placed with these weird people. And so that's kind of where the movie goes. Uh, we find out that there's some, uh, I, I don't know how much of this we actually want to get into. There's a mysterious other guest at the house who <laughs> we don't get to see. Uh, it's just sort of a person behind a, a screen and we don't really know what's going on with that, but that's sort of an important mystery there. And there's some history of, of romance and murder and things going on in this house. And so these characters all get caught up in that. This becomes briefly later on almost like a slasher film there's some murders that happen there and Lisa gets sort of drawn into the web of this character Max uh, Ma Massimo Max who is as we said, in love with her, sees her as kind of like a reincarnation of a past lover of his named Elena, who is an important character in the backstory of all this. And so he is obsessed with her. She kind of just goes along with him, which is, yeah. you know, a little tough to believe. And then at the margins of all this is this character, Leandro, played by Telly Savalas, who clearly is up to no good of some kind and is just kind of a, a an evil seeming trickster type character. I mean, he's a he's the butler, so he's serving food and stuff like that, but you can tell something's not quite right with him and uh, and there's a sort of ominous air about him and a little bit about uh the countess and and her son as well. How would I do, Chris? <laughs> we figured out Lisa and the devil. I, if I had to go farther than that, like if we were oh going to take God, this go from day. beginning to end and just spoil stuff, forget about it. But I think that's a pretty good, that's the setup of the movie. We could record a three hour podcast on this movie if we were doing like the scene for scene stuff, because I mean, actually everything you said there, like, like I, I could imagine listening to this episode and going, Oh, that, that, that seems pretty straightforward. It does. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty straightforward plot, but we learn early on that this movie, I think is not going to follow sort of standard logic. It's a very surreal kind of dreamlike movie in a lot of ways. And it has that almost Lynchian sort of, you know, proto Lynchian dream logic to it where characters don't really behave in sort of recognizable human ways. They just sort of go about, you know, drifting through this scary situation, which isn't like at first it doesn't really even seem all that horrible or horrific, but it is, you know, they're kind of just wandering through it without like a lot of logic or a lot of motivation or anything like that. And as I was saying, we don't really get to know this Lisa character at all. We just kind of meet her at the beginning of this film and she gets lost and we get a really good sense of, of just sort of her disorientation, but she doesn't respond to it in any sort of recognizable way. And all the characters seem sort of weird and melodramatic and they don't seem like 
you know, realistic human people. So it does have a sort of very surrealist, almost dreamlike flow to it through the entire film. And I think that's one of the things about it where that's either going to be a, a huge selling point for it, if you're into that kind of stuff, or it's one of those things where you're going to be like, this doesn't make any sense and, and check out pretty early, I think. Yeah, and... <laughs> It was funny because when I was watching it, all I could think of watching uh, Telly Savalas was when they because the whole lollipop thing is taken right from Kojak. I well, th- I think it was I taken think... in Kojak from here because that's the only thing oh, I was knew it the about other way Kojak, around, right? Yeah, I, well. I'm I'm finding a lot of mixed signals on that because I tried to research that. It sounds like he did this movie first, and that was kind of like his thing, his oh. actor's business that he did in this, and that carried over to That was a very successful TV show. So uh, let me ask you about Kojak, because I had never seen it. It was kind of before our time. So how did you catch that? What made you put that on when you were my, a kid? My folks, either my mother or my father used to watch it when I was <laughs> I think really my mom young. watched it too, yeah. I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. I don't remember a thing about about it other than I grew up knowing exactly who Kojak was. He was <laughs> okay. he was bald and he was the you know, I was kinda hoping at one point in this movie he would come out and be like, Who loves you, baby? or whatever <laughs> his line. Uh enough so so that when I saw him on the screen I immediately was like, Wait a minute, is that fucking Kojak? Uh, it is indeed. very much so. Yeah. And I will say, like, let's just get this out of the way early. He's one of my favorite things about this movie. He is, he is fantastic my fa- in this. Absolutely. He my favorite thing about choose so much scenery in this. And the sort of like, as I said, it's kind of a tricksterish character. He's kind of playful. He like sings songs to himself when he's doing weird, creepy stuff. And, you know, seems very comfortable around dead bodies and things like that. And he is this kind of like he's not a bad looking guy. Actually, he looks a lot like one of my grandfathers, uh, although my grandfather had a wonderful head of hair and Telly Savalas very famously is very very bald there's a shot in this movie like a close-up of his bald head which I thought was hilarious like the camera is just sort of <laughs> lovingly taking in the shine and the roundness of his head but um yeah, he's so much fun in this movie and he really adds to the weirdness, but also he kind of grounds it because, again, he is kind of a recognizable American actor and we've seen him before and he just seems to be having an absolute blast making this movie. The rest of the acting, I think, is is kind of spotty in places. Again, this movie's dubbed much like Black Sunday and much like uh, most Italian films of this period are made for an international audience. Uh, but the other performances are, are fine. They're not super over the top. They're not not terrible, but none of them are nearly as fun as his. He's just an absolute blast every time he's on screen. I wish he was in it more because he doesn't get quite as much screen time as you would think, um, considering how important he is in the opening scenes. But yeah, every time Telly Savalas is on screen, I'm like, this guy, this guy's got something. <laughs> I would hire him to be my my lead in my detective show or whatever Kojak was. I think it was a cop show, right? Yeah, and you, you really... Um... You sort of nailed it when you talked about this. This movie to me was the sequence that it's like, like telegraphed is sort of, I don't know, not, you use the word, um, I don't know, sort of outside of the boundaries of logic. Like it doesn't really, like you go from one scene to the next and just be like kind of disoriented, like what? <laughs> and, and also very dreamlike, like you were saying before. In fact, there are scenes that I think are purposely, are absolutely purposely meant to be representing sort of the the 
strange state of mind that we're in when we're dreaming. And I kind of liked that a little bit, to be honest. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, this is a movie where uh, I was desperately trying to 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 figure out to stay up to pace with it and was struggling uh so that that hurt the movie a little bit for me there but um i mean i will say i i just like the previous movie we were talking about um i thought the ending here was pretty cool i don't understand how it happened at all <laughs> yeah or or how that is is possible I mean, the movie ends kind of in a way where I felt like I was supposed to understand why it ended that way, and I didn't. Uh, but whatever, it was it was a it was a surprise. <laughs> There's a, a twist here that I'm not sure I fully understand, but if it is what I think it is, I think it's a really good idea. But yeah, I mean, it's. Like you said, I think it, it's a little bit of a slog to get through just because nothing really makes a lot of sense and we really can't grasp onto any of these characters and we see them do things that just are totally not what we expected. And, and of course, you know, reversals and, and things like that are part of any movie, right? But because there's like really nothing to cling to here, it's very hard to get invested in any of it. So I will tell you, I mean, what is incredible about Lisa and the Devil is is the visuals and and the directorial style, the filmmaking. Bava is a genius, right? I mean, this has the same... I mean, Black Sunday has incredible cinematography in black and white, but, like, when you get this guy making a color movie, like, wow. Um, there, There is just such incredible use of color in this. The green uh, jacket that Lisa wears through a lot of this, the reds, these, like, really deep sort of saturated reds. Um, there's a lot of backlighting in this movie. Oh, the so house. I love the house. The house, the house is incredible, is yeah. Cool. So all yeah. the production design, it, much like Black Sunday, right like that has a really cool castle this has this like aristocratic mansion that has kind of like some abandoned looking wings and it's got a dining room that looks exactly like the dining room in the original Resident Evil video game and there's like an <laughs> overhead shot and I'm like I think they just copied it like maybe I'm wrong it's been a while since I played I love that game so much um but yeah, so I think the the production design in this is just really incredible, really evocative. I mean, this is it's it's every frame a painting, you know. The use of color in this is very painterly, very sort of lush and beautiful and there's sort of a a a thing going on, a motif of mannequins and like mannequin heads and uh, and fake people, and I think that's used really interestingly. There's sort of a there's some some creepiness that sort of comes out of that but um the camera angles are incredible like the beginning of the movie where lisa's lost in this this city that she's unfamiliar with or this town that she's unfamiliar with um the way the sort of low angles like we're shooting her from down low and the buildings are just kind of looming over her head these like alleyways mm -hmm. that she's stuck in and then we also get these high angles right where we're looking down on her this sort of powerless character in this you know almost labyrinthine sort of city where there's really nobody around there's like one creepy old lady and in one building and she just kind of blows her off right away but otherwise it's almost like she's lost in yeah like some kind of dream world or something like that and the film just it, it's you can tell this is made by just a, a master filmmaker there's a really interesting scene Chris I know you noticed this early on in the film where she first gets picked up by the couple in the car and there's like so many different camera angles here like the camera just <laughs> isolates like yeah. two different characters or three different characters or a close up of one and it keeps cutting back and forth. It I mean, goes on a, forever. 
it goes on forever, almost to the point of like self-parody. And there's a lot of zoom lens in this movie and there's zooms in this scene too. And we're seeing these characters' faces and they're all mysterious and all inscrutable. And you're like, all right, who the hell are these people and what's going on here? And why is this movie like trying to make me afraid of all of them or get me weirded out by all of them? Like we, we don't know really what to believe or what to, <laughs> to grasp onto here. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, there's, there's a lot of just beautiful shots. There's a lot of really interestingly choreographed sequences and I don't know I mean parts of this look almost like a chamber piece right like a like an artsy drama more so than they do a horror film and again that's Bava that that just incredible visual sense that he has uh Chris what did you think of the score in this movie <laughs> it's great right I loved it <laughs> I, th- I thought it was great it and I mean I, I just like I guess I've just come to like expect that now with like movies in in this uh era and that genre because you know it's not um i do i will confess like i do like some of the more sporadic and electronic stuff that you hear in Ar- argento's uh movies yeah like but, goblin yeah 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 but um no, I totally, I totally dug it, man. Like the, again, the, this this movie—it's—it's oh. it's so weird. It's—it's it's like a swinging kind of score. It's like it's not really a horror movie score yeah. at all. It reminds me of like Tarantino has incorporated stuff from from uh, foreign films and older movies into his work, and a lot of this sounded like stuff that you'd hear in like a random scene in a Tarantino film. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I would warn. Um, audiences uh maximilian does some pretty creepy stuff in this movie yeah uh, this, this is a trigger was, warning kind of movie i, I was kind of like really you know like that i thought that could have been cut back a little bit but whatever i mean it is what it is you know it's i it, think it was when they re-released it i think they took some out of it. they added some more nude scenes but they took out a little bit yeah not to spoil it too much but there is a, a fairly creepy and disturbing scene which it's a horror movie so fine but it's it's a little much it's you'll, you'll if you're watching it with your significant other you'll probably feel awkward a little bit you know what I mean? just because it, it's, i watched it alone and i felt pretty awkward. yeah it's, exactly exactly so imagine me yes <laughs> but uh so there is that yeah but um no i think again i think this movie only suffers mainly from just the story doesn't make sense um and I think that's a problem for a lot of people. And again, like you, I'm all about abstract movies. Like I'll watch, I'll watch a David Lynch film and, or any, or anything. But, um, this one never got me with the story to the point where I was ever like, um, well, just personally invested in it, you know, like the, no, not at all. That's the previous film we're talking about, like right off the bat, we're like Alzheimer's disease, you know, like that's something we can all relate to like right off the bat. And, uh, just kind of this relentless, uh, relentlessly dark film with tons of tension on it from top to bottom and then this one is like there's some scenes where you know I don't want to say I was looking at my watch but I was kind of like okay like where are we going here um, yeah, it's not boring, but it definitely meanders yeah. a lot. I mean, it, it's it's not boring because it's all just so gorgeous to look at, right? There's this uh, like a flashback 
kind of dream sequence. It's hard to explain exactly what it is without totally spoiling things, but it's just like overexposed. They're like out in, in the, the grounds of this mansion and the greens are just sort of jumping off the screen and there's all this sunlight. It's <laughs> it's just a gorgeous scene to look at. It's kind of in slow-mo. The camera's circling around some characters. I mean, it's all really beautiful, but yeah, even that gets to be a little bit much after a while. It's like, all right, we get it. Like, this is a really great looking movie, but there's really not a whole lot else to hold on to. I mean, it, it has a unique feel to it. There are parts of it that don't really feel like like horror at all, but also, you know, it, it kind of never gets me to a point where I'm scared. It never gets me to a point where I care really about the characters or their interactions, and it's kind of just like a thing happens, then another thing happens. There's some mysteries. It does pretty well get explained. And also the protagonist, right? Like, Lisa is unconscious through a lot of important stuff in this film where we're kind of learning what's actually going on in this weird, creepy mansion. And so, like, she's just... It's a very tough protagonist to care much about because, you know... She's not that active in the story. Things just kind of happen around her. She's kind of at the periphery of it through a lot. And we don't know anything about her and why she's connected with this or what would lead her to this. So um, I think that's, you know, like... I would say the biggest problem here is the script and the story, uh, and, and the best things certainly are the the visuals, the direction, and and Telly Savalas, man, he's great. He really is. Um, he has a he has a great monologue in this movie too, but. Um... I love all the scenes where he sings to himself. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I mean, again, it's it's totally not like. Um, I think that the biggest sort of misfire for us, just as far as this being the selection that I made, was that again I had no knowledge of the fact that this was completely remade into a different film. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, you know, and I, and I, and I do find it kind of strange that like Shutter has this version and not the other one on the um the uh the the the, the platform. But well, I mean, this is the true version, though, right. right? Like, this is the one, I think if you're any kind of purist, you know the other one was kind of just a cash grab. It was like, all right, we have this film that nobody's interested in, so what can we do to make it marketable? And that's not usually a thing that leads to great movies, right? Like, if you're just like, how can we make some money off this thing that nobody likes? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah and it's... I don't know. I, I can't think of another example of that where a movie was just completely recut to be something almost completely different from what it is. But I can't imagine that makes it better. Right. Right. And um, hey, just to let you know, I I looked up the gentleman who did the score for this movie, Carlos Savina. Yeah. And my jaw is dropping. He, he scored like 100 movies. Um not many of which I recognize because, again, they're from a time period I'm not too familiar with. Mostly stuff from the 60s and 70s. I'm trying to see if I see anything in here that is notable that... What's it's 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 a really fun score. I mean, I knew you you're a music guy, so I knew you'd appreciate it right away. It's definitely very unique for a horror movie. It's like I said, it's kind of a swinging '60s mod kind of thing, which is not something you would generally see. And this is, I guess, kind of a gothic horror movie. It's it's got some similarities to Black Sunday in that way. And just to hear this sort of swinging '60s music, uh, it, even in some of the really tense scenes, there's uh, a woman running from a killer at one point in this movie, and the score 
score is just kind of like jazzy, swinging, campy, and uh, it's it doesn't really fit, but also it's really interesting. I love stuff like that, and that's, you know, it's different when you listen to music on its own, right? Like, it's it's hard to judge it, really. Like, in other words, if you're if you're into it, you're into it. You know, if you're listening to it and you're just kind of like moving your body around to it, like, like, like the music is just hitting you. You can't not like it if you're into it. And that's why what I find so interesting about music and film is, uh, how it enhances the, the, the scene. And I mean, or, or like our, our, uh, our friend of, of study from our last show, John Carpenter would say, you know, like, he makes some sarcastic comment about how, oh yeah, yeah, you know, I'd do the score to my own movies to 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 hide my fuck ups or or, or something like yeah. that, you know. But uh, oftentimes, it, it was when we were watching those movies when the score comes on, it would actually get me like pumped up, or you know, maybe just add a layer of uh, to, to keep your attention with some atmospherics and stuff like that. But no, I have sure. no well, complaints about the music in this movie whatsoever. I mean, I don't either, but like, it's a interesting comparison to the Carpenter scores, right? Because they really do fit the films that Holy they're in. You know, shit. the theme, the theme from escape from Wait. New York is like that's snake Plissken in music. Yeah. Form. Now, Nick, I'm sorry. This, this, you had a revelation. What is this it? fucking guy? <laughs> Carlos Savino was an Italian composer and conductor who composed, arranged, and conducted music for films and is especially remembered for being the music director of films such as The Godfather? Nino Rota did the uh, the score for The Godfather, Well, this though. says music director of films such as The Godfather. Well, it is Wikipedia, so it could be wrong. No, that's, uh, I mean, I guess that's two different, he must have conducted the uh, whatever his involvement that's probably my favorite film score of all time um yeah so uh i i like this guy's work i will say (laughs) you know going back to my point about john carpenter like it's so incongruous with what's going on on screen in this film that it is really interesting but also like it doesn't get you more sort of invested in the movie it's just like a you know it's almost an intellectual thing like why would they play that during this scene but i don't know it it held my interest it did it it held my interest as well all right chris so uh any any other things to say about this i mean we can spoil more of it or something like that but i I don't know that we necessarily need to i think we've talked about the pros and cons but uh what else what else we want to add to our discussion of lisa and the devil (sighs) i mean i don't know i think i mean i'm glad i saw it you know and uh i if I were going to add anything, I can't at this point fairly make an assessment of the rest of uh, Baba's work. I think we kind of uh, made that statement pretty clear on the last episode. Like Nick and I had only seen uh, Bay of Blood and Black Sunday. So this is now only the third film of his that I've seen. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely excited. To that's see what more. I'm saying. I, I am think, too. I feel the same yeah. way. Yeah. This definitely feels like lesser Bava to me. And I know he disowned the later the House of Exorcism version of this, but I still feel like even his own original version that was what he actually wanted to make, it doesn't feel like one of his best films. And we actually uh, had a really nice note from a listener who was a Bava fan and recommended all of these films of his that you and I have not seen and didn't mention this one. And I think probably this person has seen this movie, but 
it's not the first one that comes to mind when you're thinking, what are the greatest Mario Bava films? It is the the description on Shudder for Lisa and the Devil calls it his most unusual film. And I'll give it that. It's unusual. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, and with that being said, I'm curious to see, do you, do you have uh, an R.I.Y.L. for this? I do. I have, I think, Ooh. a pretty good one. Oh, I hope um, you don't take mine, because I had a really hard time trying to think of one. And I, I think I'm probably going to take yours. There's a, a, a big chance for crossover oh, here, so you no. can go first if you want. Well, I was... <laughs> it's a movie you recommended that I watch, and actually, I think, I don't even remember reporting back to you that I watched it, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> no, if it's the same one, I'm going to die. I was going to recommend Messiah of Evil. Oh, wow. All right. I mean, that's a pretty lesser known film, but because it's on Shutter, I do feel like a lot of our audience has seen that. Yeah, that movie's great. And not so much because of, I mean, it, again, I am a, a, a novice <laughs> when it when it comes to movies in this in this era. But um, similar time period, I mean, Messiah of Evil came out in uh, in 1973 and um, it's not a it's not an Italian horror film but it just i don't know there were certain certain things in that movie like the kind of like the the you know the dreamlike quality i think it's a oh, sure I, the, I, the color i mean it's it's a very yes, european the, indebted film it's made by uh willard hoik and gloria katz who were associates of george lucas and went on to yes kind of, i read about you know, that work on the indiana jones I, movies and i feel bad yeah. and i feel bad i never got back to you like i actually really liked that movie uh, i one, love that, that movie that's yeah. another I, that one was that, I, I had only seen that for the first time just recently too that was recommended to me and it came up on shutter this movie from 1973 it was like this is lovecraftian and it's, uh, uh, once that it's one... made by people who I'm familiar with. How have I never seen this? But yeah, that movie's great. Yeah, once that one gets going, it's it's uh, it's pretty good. So I can't imagine. Uh, I I think it's a superior film actually, which is another reason why I suggested it. But uh... yeah, I I think it is too. But it does have a lot of the same dream logic. It does have some of the same visual style. It is you know it's kind of about a, a young woman in an unfamiliar place that gets caught up in some evil goings on. So I actually think that's a really good one for this. And you know I do think if you like that, you will like <laughs> at least certain aspects of this. But sure. uh, Chris, what do you got for a rating for Lisa and the Devil? Uh, I'm actually going to, I, I, I wish we had thought of this before because in my heart of hearts, I want to give this a 2.5. Okay. And I can't because we, we didn't really make that, um, designation. So that being said, since I did watch it a second time and I appreciated it a little bit more, I'm going to go ahead and give this a, a three stand by me. Um, only because I do think that there's enough here to have it be appealing to horror fans. Like, if, in other words, like, if you're a horror fan, is it as critical to see this as it is Black Sunday? No. But I think just in the overall study of uh, a legendary filmmaker in that genre, yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I, I'd recommend it. Um, but, again, in my heart of hearts, I really want to kind of give it a 2.5 only because... <laughs> I don't think there's really anything scary about this. So the scarcely scary sign was kind of flashing at me. Um, but I think there's... Yeah, it, it, it's a better film than it is a horror film. And I don't think it's a, a perfect film by any means. But yeah, there's there's nothing particularly frightening in this. Yeah, so 2.5, but for the sake of the scale, I'll, I'll give it a 3 and recommend it to hardcore fans of Italian horror if you haven't seen it. 
Sure. And if you're taking a deep dive into Mario Bava, which I think you and I are yes, going to do. So I'm you ready. have to see them all. It's like, you know, with bands, right? They have their essential albums and then those other sort of outliers. <laughs> like, you know, if you're a Sonic Youth person, then like Rather Ripped is the one you have to hear or one of the ones you have to hear. Sure. And then there's like other sort of weird albums they released in between where they were doing different drugs or on some kind of other experimental sort of bent. And you might not like them as much, but, but they're worth hearing because this is a band you really like. And I feel that way about Bava. I mean, he's a filmmaker just from what I've seen. I, I'm a big fan of his. Um, my R.I.Y.L. for this one is actually Suspiria because I, I know this was sort of an influence on Suspiria, but I definitely saw some parallels there. Again, that's a film about a, a young woman in a foreign city who gets caught up in some evil goings on and she doesn't really understand it. It's this kind of bigger, more ominous thing than her that's sort of surrounding her and she doesn't really see the full picture of it at first. Uh, uh, this does have some of the beautiful colored lighting that Suspiria has. It has one of my favorite things in all of cinema, which is 70s movie blood. Both of them have a whole heaping helping of that gorgeous looking, very saturated, very like red paint looking 70s movie blood that I love so, so much. It's just, it's one of the visual things that I just, I, I can't get enough of it. I, I'm not a gore guy. I'm not a movie, uh, I'm not a movie viewer who's really into seeing, you know, people getting hacked up and blood. I, I'll watch that kind of stuff. I don't mind it. But um, as far as like what blood just looks the most aesthetically pleasing to me on film, it's that 1970s movie <laughs> blood, man. It's just so that like technicolor red oh it's gorgeous sure, and, sure. and, they, and they both have it and uh and certainly like the red and blue lighting and the the very sort of accomplished and fluid camera work we see a lot of that in Suspiria and and we see a lot of that here I don't think it's nearly as good a movie as Suspiria I mean that one is is sort of illogical too but it does have a pretty straightforward plot and you don't really need to get so invested in it and the lead character is a lot more sympathetic in in that film Susie is you know at least we sort of we, we we care about her, I think, a lot more than we do about Lisa. So all sure. that said, I, I am also going to give this a three. I'm going to give it a standby. Yeah, me. look at that. I mean, I, I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't work particularly well as a horror film. I don't think it's very scary, but it's really gorgeous to look at. There are some very memorable moments and memorable scenes, uh, like that flashback sequence I was talking about. Some of the murders, there's uh, a murder involving a car that is incredibly gratuitous <laughs> and just pretty enjoyable. I wasn't really expecting that. I mean, this, this starts off like a very austere, kind of classy sort of horror movie, and then goes for the exploitation stuff kind of later on yeah. um, there is you know some nudity and some blood some 70s red movie blood later on mm -hmm. so i think all of those elements are enough to make this at least worth seeing and particularly like we said if you find yourself just wanting to know more about Bava. I mean, you don't just watch a filmmaker's best movies. You watch all of their movies, right? And you that sort of correct. see see what the recurring things are. I mean, look, we just did a whole podcast about John Carpenter, and that involved us watching Ghosts of Mars and Memoirs of an Invisible Man and, and things like that. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's fair to put this one right in the middle. I completely agree. And I get, like I said, glad I saw it ultimately and uh me too but I, I say that about most movies right and and you yeah. especially like one of the things i love about you as a film viewer is you will give movies a chance you'll watch almost anything a second time and a lot of times you do kind of develop some greater appreciation for it i don't have time for that and i also don't have the patience for that but you do and i think that's a really good thing 
Listen, I've it's, I've it's, celebrated that trait about you before on other shows. Oh, I appreciate that, and it's it's hard to uh, it's 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 hard to get all the layers on on one watch sometimes, and uh, you know, I'm not saying that every movie deserves it, but you, usually on a second watch, I can I'll either go from liking something to loving something, or go from being like. I didn't really like it, but now I have gained some kind of appreciation for it um, in most well, cases. I mean, that's really good. And like I said, that takes patience and dedication. And I'm glad you have it because I guess I'm just sort of <laughs> patience is never a thing that I had much of in any aspect of my life. So uh, certainly with film viewing as well. All right. Well, look, we uh, we're four movies in now. We've come a pretty long way. I love it. I love it, Nick. What are we? What are we doing? Are we gonna? No, let's leave. Uh, let's leave our next episode's theme a surprise, maybe. No, I think we should talk about. Uh, we won't talk about what the movies are, but yes. we are because it is late July now, and it'll be early August or almost mid-August. Wow, summer goes by so fast. By the time we get our next episode out, we are going to do summer movies because we wanted to squeeze those in before the summer was over. So movies that have some kind of summer theme to them, and you might have some guesses at what we are going to do. Shutter has a pretty good selection of movies that are summery in some way, but that's what we're going to be talking about the next time. Until then, though. We would love to hear from you if you've got some recommendations, if you've got some feedback on the show. Again, we really love to talk to our audience and we really love to interact with you and uh, and, and hear your thoughts on these films or any others. We might be completely wrong on things like Lisa and the Devil, and mm-hmm. we'd love to know that. We, we welcome that. So if you want to get in touch with us via email, we are at ShudderingPod. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R-I-N-G-P-O-D at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at ShudderingPod, Facebook.com slash ShudderingPod and our website where you can find all our subscription links, which are all up at this point. Uh, that that happened. That takes a little while to do, but finally we're on there, and I, I've found the show on places like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So yes. We're really getting this out into the world. I'm Cheers very happy about that. Yes. So all of those links are at our official website, which is shutteringpod.simplecast.com. Uh, please subscribe to the show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, leave us a rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. And uh, and we want to just keep going with this thing and growing it and making it bigger and better all the time. We've got a lot of horror movies to talk about. Halloween is just a few short months away and mm. probably do some fun stuff for that. And, uh, and I promise next time I won't celebrate quite so much that we're on episode three but when we get to like <laughs> i said 10 25 50 that's what I, i'll just comment on that i think that nick and i are both we are uh we're, we're, this is not an in and out thing we are in this for for the long haul i hope um so i you know this this program is uh very much still in its infancy and i cannot wait for us to celebrate all of these wonderful films that we're going to be discussing. Yeah, and all, even the not-so-good ones. Oh, yes, and the not-so-good ones as well, yes. <laughs> At least we'll have a good discussion about them. All right, we will catch you in a couple of weeks on The Shuddering. Shuddering.